Digiday podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had the conversation this week and you spoke with Dittavio Samuels, who is the CEO of Revolt. Yeah, so why did you want to have Dittavio on the episode this week? And uh, curious also what Revolt is. Yeah, I mean, uh, these days I just want to talk to anyone who's the owner of a TV network uh, about how things are going with the the business, and especially like between the traditional TV side and the streaming side of things, and then also heading into the upfronts. And so Dittavio is also someone I haven't talked to in a couple of years. Um, so I was like, okay, perfect. Like I can catch up with someone that I had a great conversation with a couple of years ago um, and do it, you know, for the podcast for others to listen. So it kind of worked out um, pretty nicely. And it was a good conversation. We cover a lot of ground when it comes to uh, the state of Revolt's you know, TV business, state of its you know, streaming business, how the revenue compares between um, its linear and digital businesses, and then um, all things up front. Yeah. So I guess curious, I know that there's been this kind of steady progression of digital taking over some uh, of the market share from linear revenue lately. Um, was that something that uh, Dottavio noticed in, in the past couple of years? Yeah. So, I mean, they've completely flipped it where now digital accounts for more revenue than linear. And he actually like gets into, you know, ask him like, what's the percentage breakdown? Um, and one thing that's you know surprising, surprised me about that is it's not just a matter of, oh, linear TV revenue shrunk. And so, you know, shrunk to the point where like, of course, digital is bigger now. Like he says, both revenue streams have been growing year over year. Um, and so it's just a, a matter of digital, you know, growing to the point of accelerating past linear, which is pretty interesting. Definitely more of an audience shift, it seems like, but um, I'll let you guys get into it. Sounds like a really cool conversation. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Tavia Samuels, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on the show because I, I can't talk to enough TV network execs or execs at companies that own TV networks. I mean, this has been the case for a couple of years now, but there's just, obviously, you know better than I do, like all the shifts in the business and the diversification efforts to just get let's get streaming businesses up and running. You all launched a podcast network last year. And so just, you know, getting other revenue streams up and running. We talked a couple of years ago, just before you got promoted to CEO, when um, at that time the plan was to launch the streaming service and the consideration was to launch a subscription tier to that um, by I think the end of 2021. So I kind of want to start there. Like what percentage of revenue for Revolt is coming from streaming at this point? Yeah, so the way that I would look at it is, you know, what I would say is um, when we first started out, um, cable and linear was by far the largest portion of our revenue. I think if you compared it, it was probably um, two to three times what we were doing on the digital side. Um, and today, when you look at it, that that has actually flipped. Now our digital our digital revenue is much larger than our linear revenue. Um, over the last few years, we've seen our digital revenue grow about nine to ten x. Um, whereas our linear revenue has probably grown closer to four to five X. And so streaming and digital is without question um, the biggest portion of our business right now. Oh, uh, what are the actual percentages there? Um, at the percentages in terms of the revenue increases? Yeah, share, well, no, share of revenue for digital and then share of revenue. For okay, revenue. yep. So when you look at it last year, 
it would have been five eighths, let's call it five eighths digital and three eighths linear. Okay. All right. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty impressive considering like on linear, you got the dual revenue stream of, you know, traditionally, you know, networks revolt included, you get that carriage fee from the pay TV providers where you get a, you know, piece of every subscriber who's getting revolts channels, and then you get the ad revenue on top of it. So on the digital revenue side, we mentioned streaming, but can you break down like all the different digital revenue sources for Revolt for me? Yeah, sure. So video, of course, is our biggest one because we know that advertisers' favorite weapon is pre-roll, mid-roll, right? Being able to, to, to push their television spots through the ecosystem. And so the bulk of that um, is coming from our YouTube um, our website and our streaming apps. And when we, when we talk about streaming, you're talking about mobile, we're on iOS, Android, um, but you're also talking about connected TV. Last week, we just launched on Vizio. Um, so we're super excited about that with a lot more to come. Got it. So digital, is it all purely advertising revenue or are there other components to the digital revenue? Um, when, when you say that, what do you mean? Like whether commerce is in there, subscriptions. Copy. Copy. So last year we launched our e-commerce platform. Um, for us right now, this is very much kind of a test and a pilot. Um, you'll see us uh, launch uh, some strategic partnerships where we're testing e-commerce this year. Um, but really what happened is we have a massive event called the Revolt Summit in September. And we took Revolt gear and Revolt clothes out there and sold out within two days. And so that let us know that there's a huge opportunity for e-commerce. And so um, we are definitely experimenting in, in, in that place. We do, of course, sell display, but without question, video is the biggest component for us. And we see subscription as an opportunity, but as you know, um, the subscription market is just highly, highly saturated, right? And so, you know, for those people who know the difference between a red ocean and a blue ocean, I very much see the subscription business as a red ocean uh, where you have several massive players kind of competing. It's no longer about growing the market. It's about stealing share. And so where we really see the opportunity, um, if we were to do SVOD, would be more on kind of like that Hulu freemium play where for those people who just don't want to see ads, they can, they can buy their way out of it. But where we see the opportunity is in places like like fast channels. And so we see fast channels exploding. There are thousands of fast channels that exist today. Um, but when you look at those fast channels, you know, most of the people, most of the platforms that have fast channels have somewhere between zero to maybe two black content focused channels. And so we see that as a massive opportunity, um, not only because we know that the revolt content that we create is great, but because we have a creator platform and the, and the work that our creators create is great. Um, and it is, and you know, we think that these properties are doing a disservice not only to the black audience, but to audiences who are allies and who like to consume black content by not allowing or by not having um, black fast channels on their network. So we're super excited about the fast play. And then on the other side, you have the AVOD play that we're excited about as well. Um, we are very much a believer that you've got to let people consume when they want, how they want, where they want. Um, and by doing the AVI play, we, we solve another problem, which is the advertiser problem. And so, you know, when all of these advertisers came out post George Floyd and made these commitments to black media, one of their 
largest complaints was that there was not enough inventory in Black-owned media in order to deliver against the, the commitments. And so by us being super focused on the AVOD side, it allows us to build out that inventory, thus allowing you know us to unlock dollars for advertisers, but then to, to give them no excuse for delivering against the commitments that they've made to the, to the, to the Black-owned media cat category. Speaking of those commitments, have you seen them follow through on that? I think the typical way that most of us would see it is say it is that we've absolutely seen movement. Um, we've definitely seen movement and momentum. Um, but without question, I think that they have fallen very short from the promises that have made. And even this year, you know, with all the talk about the recession and with all of the cuts, I think even their uh, desire to deliver on those commitments are even smaller. And so a big piece of what Revolt is doing right now is trying to make sure that we hold advertisers accountable for delivering against those commitments. I say it all of the time. You know, you're talking about people who made a promise to go from from 1% to 2%, from one penny to two penny, right? So I don't know about you, but, you know, my business school training always taught me that when you need to make cuts, you go for the biggest piece of the pie. And so I don't understand how advertisers and brands, even if they are having to do cuts, still can't get to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent on black owned media. And so that is absolutely a concern. And so we're going to keep the pressure on advertisers and brands to make sure that they deliver against the commitments that they made. Got it. And so what's the work that you all do to hold the advertisers accountable there? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One is conversations like this, right? Just being in the media and making sure that they know and that the world knows and that our consumers know um, that advertisers are falling short. I think the biggest thing that consumers can do um, once they're aware is to vote with their eyeballs, right? You give us your eyeballs, you give us that inventory, and then advertisers have no excuse not to um, deliver against those commitments. I think the other thing that we're doing is working with third parties on uh, like what most advertisers haven't done is come up with a scorecard. There's no transparency, right? And so we are working with third parties to try to come up with some sort of a scorecard that can showcase whether brands have been increasing their spend with Black-owned media over the last few years or not. Um, I think those are two of the biggest ways that we're looking at um, doing it. And then the third piece is, of course, we have a media platform. And so, you know, we have a show called Revolt Black News Weekly. And so this is a conversation that we will have, um, again, with our audience in front of our audience, making sure that they know the brands who are willing to support them and the brands who are falling short of those commitments. God. And I mean, what's interesting to me there is like you're seeing the brands fall short of their commitments, but you're all Revolt's business has been growing. So you've been growing despite you know, that challenge there. Is it something where you see, oh, we would have been growing even more if these brands were actually like following through on their commitments? Or is there like an element to it where you've been able to offset that and find areas of growth that kind of counter the the brands who aren't following through? Yeah, I think for us, it's more of the former. We think that there's a lot more money that would have fallen into the ecosystem that we would have been able to unlock had brands shown up. You know, the stat that we were using a lot of last year is that, you know, in the last year we've unlocked, let's call it 100 to 150 new advertisers. Well, if you just look at the Fortune 500, the next question becomes, well, where are the other 350, right? And so if those 350 advertisers show up, like you're looking at a whole new day for Black-owned media. The other way that you look at it is I think the number across all kind of companies and corporations, not just the advertising piece that was pledged into the market, was close to about 
about $350 billion, right? There's no one that has seen $350 billion fall into black media, black companies, black anything, right? And so we know that if people would have delivered against those commitments, there would have been a lot more money and a lot more resources for us to do the type of work that we want to do. And the last thing I'll say is for us, the work that Revolt is doing, you know, people look at us as a cable company or a media company, as a television company that's doing good. And what I always say is we are an engine for transformative change for the black community who happens to be a media company. And so those resources are important, not just for us because we want to create more content, but because we want to create and fund more black entrepreneurs, because we want to create and fund more black creators. And so um, for us, it is imperative that we find a way to unlock the money that has been promised and not allow people to be performative and get the credit and the headlines um, without doing the real work. Got it. And so it's kind of a, a funky segue, but I'm going to try to make it like okay. <laughs> revolt. You own a, own a TV network, big sales cycle coming up with the the upfront, big opportunity for all the TV network owners, as well as all the you know streaming service owners, connected TV platform owners to secure budget for the next year. How, like given, you know, what you're seeing both on the commitments front, but then also just like more broadly when it comes to the economy and advertisers being unwilling to make long-term commitments or at least long-term commitments where they don't have pretty easy outs if they need to execute them. What's Revolt's upfront strategy this year? And how does it compare to the one last year? Because I imagine at least economically conditions have shifted in the past year. Yeah, I mean, um, a couple of things. One goes back to this portion of Revolt is not just a media company, we're an engine for transformative change. And so what you find and you see with a lot of these companies is not only do they have commitments to Black-owned media, they have commitments to Black suppliers, they have commitments, you know, to helping to grow Black um, home ownership, Black education, all of those things, presenting Revolt as the machine that is working across all of those things, not just the media component. Um, so again, able to unlock money, not just for media and advertising, but to do the whole Work, the entire DEI work that those companies are promising is a big part of our strategy. Um, two, um, again, it's just kind of ringing the alarm and letting them know that for those people who don't deliver against those commitments, like we have access to media, we have a loud voice, we have a chairman who can go loud, um, and we are unafraid to call brands out for not delivering against um, their commitments. And then the third piece is, um, without question, we understand that it's a two-way street in terms of brands have to make the commitments and Black-owned media has to create the inventory. And so... I would say that we've done an incredible job in terms of creating new inventory in the Black-owned media space and the Black-owned category. If I use an example, um, one of our new shows, Carisha Please, you know, that's a show that did not exist when you and I talked last time. You know, look, she's done eight episodes and on YouTube alone, she's over 35 million views. Tell me how many television shows, cable shows, you know, that are putting up those types of numbers, right? Um, in addition to that, you know, so much of our strategy is very much anchored in like most of the shows on Revolt are kind of like a talk show format. And so we do it that way because you can shoot it once and then express it in all different types of ways. 
ways. So not only is Carisha, you know, typically 30 is not only is she 35 million views on YouTube, not only is she typically trending on YouTube top five every time she goes, she's trending on Twitter top five every time she goes. When you look at Apple Podcasts, she's the number one music podcast of the week in Apple. When you look at Apple Podcasts globally, she's typically in the top five above a Ben Shapiro, above a Rachel Maddow. And so being able to walk into these rooms where people want to question the amount of inventory that we have, and we're saying, look, we're creating inventory across audio, across video. And then of course you take these shows on the road and you can, and you're creating inventory in terms of live experiences, right? And so helping brands understand all of the ways that we are now creating new inventory to do our part. And so now it's time for us to hold them accountable for doing their part. Got it. And do you largely sell all of that as a package where it's it's the video, it's the podcast, it's all of it together? Or do you kind of piecemeal it out? I'm curious, like, which way you see more success with? For us, so, so many of our advertisers really see us as video. And so I think a lot of times it ends up being sold as kind of video piecemeal. And then you have other brands and advertisers who are coming in with bets on the podcast side, which is separate and different than brands that are coming in who want to be betting on the experiential side. Um, but without question, we could sell it as a package deal um, because that's the way that we're making the content on purpose. Got it. And then, I mean, there's been so much talk with again the economy i feel like a broken yeah. record <laughs> <referring to> the <laughs> economy. no it's 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 everybody's thinking about it right we're all we're all trying to figure it out yeah but the thing that like one of the things that when i talk to agency execs about like how advertisers are moving their money around right now it's it's performance like where's the lower funnel stuff where's you know what's the stuff where my client can go okay i know this drove x sales this drove x site visits things like that and and that's been a vulnerability in a way of traditional tv certainly to an extent streaming as well how are you all kind of navigating this to be able to deliver performance you know based metrics in addition to the traditional brand level metrics yeah, I think, you know, look, we, we, we are very much able to play the performance game. We can do everything that everyone else is doing in terms of measuring things like click through rates, um, video completion rates, all of those things. Um, but my biggest thing is trying to get brands to understand that when you're dealing with black owned media, um, you have to think about the measurement and the performance differently. Instead of looking at it as just return on media, you have to look at it on as return on culture. And so while I'm giving you the stats for, um, again, I'll use Carisha as an example, you know, 35 million video views on YouTube. Carisha is also typically getting somewhere between five to six million earned um, media or earned uh, media impressions every single time she has a show. And then again, she's typically top five trending in Twitter. And so for those brands that want to be everywhere, that want the performance, they have to understand you have to buy into these shows. And then, yes, you will see and get the benefit from what Revolt delivers on platform. But we are also delivering an incredible amount of impressions and an incredible amount of, of opportunity off platform as well. God, this is somewhat of a stereotype, but I think it's a stereotype because it's all true. Brands like things easy. They like their, you know, tried and true historical numbers. They don't like so much like, oh, now there's this new metric or this new way of ha you having to look at things. So 
something like return on culture. What's that conversation like when, you know, you're making that case? And I imagine the response from the brand is something along the lines of, all right, but then how do I translate return on culture to, you know, the line items in my spreadsheet that, you know, I'm taking my CFO to make sure I got budget for next year? Yeah, sure. I'm, you're 100% right where it is very difficult to get people to break convention. Um, and part of that for me is just challenging them. So many of the marketing ideas that we are leveraging from today have been created from decades ago, right? The world was different. Um, some of our, you know, original marketing people, when they were creating those books, like the world was different in terms of, you know, look, the silent generation was like 85% white. Now you look at people like Gen Y, Gen Z, and you're talking about you're no longer marketing to a multicultural, um, like doing multicultural marketing, you're marketing to a multicultural nation. And so we have to start to think about how we adjust the way that we um, not only market, but how we measure that marketing. And I think the other piece of it for me is, you know, we can look at it on, on a timing basis. So I have some clients who will say, you know, um, we want to make sure that within the next three weeks, we've seen, let's call it six billion impressions across the work that we've done together. Then they can measure, A, did we get those impressions? B, what were the sales like during that time where those impressions were generated? Um, I think it is very possible, but it requires brands to A, not be lazy and B, be ready. You know, this is the era of disruptive thinking. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes um, while we were in um, COVID and quarantine was if your, you know, if your pre-COVID business model looks like your post-COVID business model, then you have a problem, right? I think a lot of our brands and advertisers are still stuck in the ways of what we were doing pre-COVID. And those are not the brands and the advertisers that are going to win in today's marketplace. Mm -hmm. What do you feel would have been the biggest changes, you know, for Revolt that it's not the post-COVID Revolt isn't the same as the pre-COVID Revolt? Yeah, there's nothing that's the same about revolt. <laughs> when you look at post-COVID revolt, right? Like post-COVID revolt was seen only as a cable network. Um, and while we still value that cable network, we very much see that as a competitive advantage. Every time you sign talent or you sign artists, one of their first questions is, is my show going to be on cable? Is my show going to be on television? It is also a competitive advantage in the sense that you know, look, there, there are millions of digital publishers. Um, there's, you know, a thousand cable networks. And then when you look at black owned networks, you can count them on less than one hand. Right. And so people saw us as a cable network and we still very much value that as the crown jewel. But everything that we have done from shifting our content strategy to being talent focused to, you said it, launching a podcast network, we now have 40 podcasters across 30 different podcasts to um, launching e-commerce to extending our entire digital footprint across iOS, CTV, all of these things that we mentioned. It's an entirely different revolt. Before, um, the awareness around revolt was actually, I would argue, quite low. Now we are the number one home for hip hop, period, across the world. We are the number one place where the biggest conversations for Black culture take place. All of that happens in a post-COVID world, in a post-COVID reality. And so we feel like we've done our job to shift. You know, we have a chairman that's very big on disruptive thinking, and we are pushing brands and advertisers to do the same. It's time to disrupt if you want to win in this game. What specifically did you all do that you would attribute that jump from being in the mix to being the top? 
a big piece of that was just a shift in our content strategy. And so um, what we did was adopt um, a very talent driven strategy. And so what I would say is, you know, we mirrored hip hop. Right. And so I always say in the, in the same way that hip hop dominated the audio world, we, we decided that hip hop could dominate the video world. And the way that hip hop and all of music goes out and, and, and makes their money is they go find the talent who are the distinct voices that can push culture forward that need to be amplified and heard Two, how do you take that talent? put them in the lab, work with them to create stories that they're excited about and that they want to be proud of and tell. Three, how do you unleash that into the world? And when you have that type of formula, it is now not just Revolt who is promoting it with all the love and the care, but you have this talent who has large, massive followings that are also promoting it. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, I think I told you on Carisha, and I'm going to start using a different example in a second because we have several of them, but it's just so easy. I think she was on my mind this morning. Um, when you look at Carisha, she's done eight episodes in eight months. There is no appointment viewing. I can't tell you when the next episode of Carisha Please is going to come out. We usually give the audience maybe 24, max 36 hours notice before the episode comes out. And then again, you're talking about they show up by the millions, right? And so that that type of strategy is very different than the traditional um, television strategy where you spend you know months and years developing a story and then trying to figure out who's the talent that you put inside of it. We've definitely adopted much more of a music kind of A&R model, and that has worked and paid dividends for us. And how do you make that work from a, like a financial standpoint, especially like as you're trying to manage your P&L where, because I, I would think like there would probably be a lot of CEOs who would be like, oh, if we got someone who's bringing in those kinds of numbers, I don't want it to be eight over eight months. I want it eight over eight weeks and maybe we do it seasons, but I want there to be something of, I want this to be like clockwork. Yeah, I mean, look, I would say for us at Revolt, our only constraint and our only limitation is our resources. You know, if I could do 50 episodes of Carisha, I would absolutely do it. What it takes for us to be able to do that is advertisers and brands and distributors have to show up and invest in this business and invest in this company so that we can make it happen. Um, but even while I say, you know, that that is our only limiting constraint, um, we also have a chairman that believes that the impossible is always possible, right? And so we won't let that be an excuse, but without question, we have, look, all of hip hop is bringing us their shows right now um, because of the brand and how hot the brand is. And so, yeah, the biggest thing that we need is more resources. And I would watch my revenue go up, my EBITDA continue to go up, and brands would watch their 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 businesses perform in ways that they hadn't seen before. Yeah, and so how are you managed? I mean, with you know all these people coming to you wanting to make shows, for you, how do you manage your programming budget? Because you know, programming budgets can be finite right now. I mean, we're seeing them getting really tight across the board. How has the pro programming budget at Revolt changed in the past? I mean, even in the past three to six months, maybe. Yeah. Look, when you look at it from since I got here, the programming budget is probably up four to five X. I think when we step into this year, you're going to see growth, but you're not going to see the type of massive growth that we have been seeing over the last few years. And that's just because we stepped into the year 
wanting to be conservative because we had a distrust again that advertisers and brands would show up in the way that they promised. And so, you know, for us, we're being conservative in the kind of Q1, Q2. I'm hoping that by Q3, Q4, we recognize and everybody else recognizes that, you know, the marketplace is not going to get any worse, that the only way this recession gets worse is the more we talk about the recession, <laughs> but it is kind of is what it is, right? People are still spending and then that will allow us to unlock a lot more money so that we can get these programming budgets to grow. I think the other piece of it for me is um, what Revolt, you know, one of our big ideas when, when we first came into this back in 2020, 2021, is that we have a lens that is not just beneficial and useful for our platform, but we have a lens that is beneficial and useful for advertisers. So we have an internal agency that is creating incredible award-winning work for brands and advertisers. Um, we have Revolt Studios, and we built a studio in Atlanta who's creating um, content for third parties as well. And so looking at, you know, not just the ways that we create on platform, but how do we create um, more content and more revenue by creating through our lens for other partners. Got it. And how? In other words, growing our budget through other people's money. <laughs> yeah, no, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. And so, are you all profitable at the moment? Oh yeah, crushing. So, um, you know, when you look at the numbers from when I first came in in 2020, you know, our profit is up three and a half x over the last couple of years. We are a very profitable business. Okay. And so profit, like projecting to be profitable for Q1? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, given that, because there's been so many stories, too many stories about all the cuss cutting and the layoffs in the media industry. Like, how are you managing the business in a way where you're projecting profitable for Q1? You've been profitable. I haven't heard of any layoffs at Revolt. I don't know if there have been any. No, we haven't done any layoffs at Revolt. Um, but again, to the earlier point, we are trying to be conservative as we kind of watch this thing kind of all play out. And so, you know, we've done everything from freeze hiring to um, controlling costs and all of those types of, me of measures that you would take um, just so that we can keep an eye on the business and make sure that we are not going backwards, right? Um, but at the end of the day, I believe that when the story is told and 2023 is done, no matter what happens in Q1 or no matter what happens in Q2, I believe that when the story is finally told in 10 months, you will see a brand that grew cash, a brand that grew EBITDA, and a brand that grew revenue as well. Got it. And with that, like, are you seeing any, uh, I think like the term ends up being like green shoots, like, because I think a lot of people were coming into this year thinking, all right, Q Q1 is probably going to be pretty rough for the media business. Q2, we'll see, but hopefully like the first half is the worst of it and the second half gets better. And so I've been like asking people, is any of that starting to show where like, things have bottomed, bottomed out or not. Have you seen anything? Yeah, that's exactly kind of our viewpoint on the marketplace coming into this year, which is where you hear me talking about being conservative. Um, and so, you know, uh, have I seen a marketplace that feels like it's slowed down from what I was seeing in 2021 and 2022? Yes. Um, but again, my hope and my belief is that by Q3 and Q4, um, we are back to rapid growth and the rapid growth that we've been delivering for the last couple of years. Good. And just in time for the upfront in that case. Exactly. <laughs> and the interesting thing is even right now, you know, we're getting early looks because there are a lot of these um, minority upfronts. So Magna does a, a minority upfront. 
Um, the ANA um, has a group aim. They do a minority upfront that's next week as well. And so um, given, again, the changes and the shifts since the unfortunate murder of George Floyd, we actually get to play the upfront game twice. And so right now we're getting to see and hear how advertisers are responding into our pitch and to our story. And we will continue to get to see that, you know, probably through August, uh, September, like everybody else. Oh, and what's the response you got so far? Um, so far, it's all good. You know, um, I think we have a story that nobody else has. We have a vision that nobody else has. It's important for me to say that, you know, I don't see um, Black-owned media as my competition. I see them as my peers. Some of those are my closest friends. Um, but I will also say that Revolt is a very unique and distinct um, media property. We are you know, one of the few that are video first. I think in all of them, there's probably three, right? By Byron Allen, Kathy Hughes, Alfred Liggins, and us. So we're video first in a way that not many other folks are. Um, we are the only one with a global icon at the top, like Sean Combs. We are the ones who have a bet on hip hop and hip hop is global culture. And so what that means is not only can we and are we attracting black audiences, but we're attracting audiences across every single ethnicity and globally. You know, the way that we like to say it is the DJ is black and the music is black, but everybody's invited to the party. And so I just think that this business, the way that we've built it and continue to build it, um, is a standout business. Again, I'm not talking about versus my peers. I'm talking about it's a standout business against whatever exists in the current marketplace. Do you find trade-offs with these minority upfronts? Because on, on the one hand, it's you know special showcase, especially like you said, you kind of get two bites at the apple in terms of the upfront presentations. But then on the other hand, like it could just bucket budgets in a way where it's like, all right, I'm going to set aside a portion of my budget just for these publishers and they don't really get to fight for the bigger uh, pie. I'm going to be mixing up analogies, but I think you get what I mean. Are there trade-offs to these minority upfronts? Yeah, I think you look, that was, that's always been a huge concern for us. And I don't think we ever end up knowing until we get closer to September, you know, that September, October timeframe, meaning um, on one hand, it can go the way that you just said, which is people are siphoning off very small portions of their budget and allocating that to minority owned businesses, diverse owned businesses, and then giving like, of course, the big massive lion's share to everyone else. But the other way that it works is, again, we, we are the first ones walking in and telling our stories. We are setting the bar for the industry. And so there's a world where um, you get those kind of early upfront commitments and conversations, but then also get to walk into the typical upfront portion and then get more money, right? But you never really know how that story is going to play out until you get further down into the year. Got it. And do you have a sense yet on like how the upfront may go this year? Like I've been talking to some agency execs recently and what I've been hearing a lot is flexibility is the big word all over again, um, continues to be, but like it's taken on somewhat of a new lens where it's like really flexibility on the streaming side, IEB, you know, terms of 14 days out, hundred percent out. And that programmatic is, you know, could play a bigger part in things right now because with programmatic then you have really the levers to be able to move that money around and so it's you know the networks and the streamers the, the media companies effectively who kind of offer that programmatic but there's the push-pull there between like programmatic guaranteed which the sellers like because it's more like an upfront model 
private marketplace, which the buyers like, because then it's very much more like, okay, I can kind of come in, come out as I please. What, how do you see that shaking out, the f- flexibility and the programmatic piece to the upfront this year? Yeah, so if we do programmatic, look, there may be a world where you see us get into programmatic, but right now you cannot buy a revolt programmatically. It is important for us, we have a responsibility to our audience to ensure that they know that the advertisers that they see on the Revolt platform, specifically in a big way, are advertisers that are committed to the Black community and to Black culture. And it feels like too much of an easy way out to allow someone to have pipes in and, you know, say they spent two or three dollars and count that as Black owned and say, we're doing it, right? And so, again, we are trying to do everything in our power to prevent people from um, claiming headlines and being performative and without doing the real work, which, again, doesn't say that we won't do programmatic in the future. But up until this point, programmatic has not been a thing for us. And then the second piece where you talk about flexibility, I think, um, yes, I think we're hearing a little bit of that. But um, for us, it is all part of the story that you have to look and treat diverse-owned media companies, Black-owned media companies differently because we're coming from a very different starting place. I'm not coming from Disney's $60 billion revenue stream. I'm not coming from Viacom's $30 billion revenue stream. And so everything from, and there's been a lot of brands who have made some great changes, but everything from you know, payment terms to things like options and flexibility. Um, we are able a lot of times to get brands to, to to play the game differently with us. And so my hope is that we'll be able to maintain that in 2023 as well. Got it. Okay. Um, I want to, this is a harder pivot, but you okay. mentioned um, <laughs> fast services, free ad supported streaming TV. You just you know launched the channel or brought expanded the channel to Vizio Watch Free last week, I think is what you said. Yep. Wednesday we launched. Okay. So like that's been an interesting you know space for a few years, really exploded over the past two to three years or so. And it got to this you know point where all these different fast platforms were out there, so many channels on them. Um, but then it was, you know, oh, is this going to recreate that cable challenge of 500 different channels? I don't know what to watch. I don't know how to watch things. With There's also been a lot of haggling over, well, who gets sales rights? You know, is it a revenue share where Roku or Vizio or Samsung get to sell the ads and you just get, you know, your piece of whatever they sell? Do you split the inventory? And there was the challenge where sometimes the fast services weren't selling their portion of the inventory. And so there's like effectively money sitting there on the table, but they wouldn't give that inventory back to the channel owners to go make the money. How are you all selling your fast channels? Do you have full sale rights across the board? Is it rough share or does it vary platform to platform? It definitely right now is varying platform to platform, but what we are arguing for and pushing for more and more every single time is that we would have the rights to be able to sell um, as much of the inventory as possible. Um, One, you know, again, it's important for two reasons. Um, One, again, we just don't want brands to be able to, you know, buy into run of network for some fast channels and then be able to claim and say that they were supporting black owned media. That's one. Um, And then two, the core problem that has to be solved in the advertising business for advertisers who make this commitment 
is that there is more black owned inventory. And so in order to be able to deliver against that, then we need to be able to own the inventory that that those people want to buy into. Um, so, yes, it's definitely been varied and it's definitely been a little bit mixed. But our going in position every time is, you know, I believe that we will do the best job selling that inventory. And it's important for us to have as much of that as possible. Got Are there concessions you have to then be making in order to get those sales rights? Like, okay, if, you know, Revolt gets sales rights, do you have to give up something to the platform? No, I mean, literally right now, I think for most of our deals, it's just been a real conversation around what the split looks like. Um, and then, you know, some people are coming back trying to say that we'll be able to sell any unsold inventory. So I think it's just it's, 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 it's the conversation is in the allocation of um, who gets to sell what and how much of it, but not really any concessions that I can think of off the top of my head. God. What are you generally saying in terms of the split, in terms of like what percentage of inventory you get to sell, what percentage of inventory the platforms are keeping to sell themselves? Yeah. In our ideal world, we're always going to end up with more than 50%. Um, I think in our worst case scenario, we land at 50-50 in our ideal world. Okay. So that's, not, I mean, 50-50 it's not nothing. It's better than 70-30 going the other way. That's exactly right. <laughs> and then programming for the fast channels because that's been another thing a lot of i mean especially tv network owners you have these huge libraries of programming very easy spin up channels and you know these fast services kind of become profitable off the bat after you take into account the technical costs and kind of the startup costs and the upkeep of it but then there becomes you know that question of at some point do you have to start programming specifically for these channels does it make sense to get into originals i don't think roku and amazon freebie are doing kind of originals at the platform level but they're more incentivized to do that i don't i'm trying to think of anyone i've come across who owns a fast channel or portfolio of fast, channel, fast channels and is doing originals just because I feel like the argument I always hear back is it doesn't make sense. There's not enough money there to be putting that level of investment. You're not in your head. Is that how you're looking at it? Yeah, I think I see it two ways. Um, one, first and foremost, like Revolt's mission is to build the world's largest storytelling engine powered by Black creators. And so I would argue that we do have originals that can go on our fast channels. They're just not necessarily originals that Revolt created, right? But our whole business model is about partnering with all of these amazing creators that are being overlooked and ignored. Um, and if they bring, their, you know, we serve as almost an accelerator to them, right? Helping them with their brands, helping them with their brand strategy, their content strategy. Once we get that content, then there can be exclusive content that lives within a fast channel um, that's not necessarily been made or created created by by revolt but we also have um you know a handful of uh smaller shows that are exclusive on our fast channel as well but the real strategy for us is the partnership with black creators okay and exclusive and exclusive first window on the fast channels as opposed to because i guess that's the other part of the thing if you have something that's that valuable does it make sense to go on the fast channel or should it like it go somewhere else as the first window yeah. And so and that's where the important piece comes in is the black creator component. So when you look at so we have a we have a fast channel called Revolt Mixtape, to your point, it's going to be mostly largely library content that's been around for for some time. Um, but then what where we get the advantage is the power, the partnership with the black creators. And that's where you can see exclusive content that makes sense for for both of us, for all of us to get that first window. OK, Um 
So you're coming up on your two-year anniversary of taking the CEO job. As you kind of mentioned, especially when we were talking about that pre-COVID to post-COVID revolt changed a lot. What's what's the big priority in 2023? Like what's the next evolution of a revolt? Yeah, we firmly believe and, you know, are in conversations with several other Black-owned media companies that there is going to be somebody that builds the app for the culture, um, the AVOD streaming app for the culture. What does a Black Hulu look like? What does a Black Disney Plus look like? Um, and so that for us is a really exciting um, bet and exciting adventure. A lot of, you know, the way the revolt looks at ourselves is that we are, it's not just about revolt. We are a platform for the culture. We are an operating system for the culture. That's why we've got 30 different podcasters. That's why we've partnered with all of these different creators. And so you can imagine a world, um, where uh, we are able to partner with a lot of these other Black studios and Black creators and create the definitive app for the culture right in your pocket. Um, when you look at the marketplace, specifically the Black-owned media marketplace, um, one of the competitive advantages that Revolt has is that many of our friends and peers are our studios. They don't have actual distribution. And so, again, whether it's fast channels, whether it's AVOD, whatever that is, we see a tremendous opportunity to bring us all together. We believe in strength in numbers um, to go out there and build like the true app for the culture. That's one. This, the second one is really on the experiential side. Um, last year we had the Revolt Summit. We were able to double the attendance from the year prior. This year we have a big dream of doubling that attendance as well. Um, we are working in partnership with the city of Atlanta. We want to bring millions of millions of jobs and millions of revenue into that city. Um, we are working in, in conversations with great people like TD Jakes, um, uh, who's got a, a phenomenal program for entrepreneurs called Good Soil. Um, that we're looking at. So it's, again, how are we the platform to bring all of these people in, maybe not into what you call a revolt summit, but what you call a revolt world. Um, and so that's an exciting opportunity that we're looking at this year. Got it. Okay. Before we go, I want to go back to you know, the, the Black Hulu idea. So that it sounds like that's not a necessarily a revolt plus, but it'd be is the idea that that would be some joint venture? Yeah, so looking at many different ways that you can look at it from a business structure, of course, I still love the idea that it's a Revolt Plus, right? Um, revolt in, in, in and of itself by its name is about the revolution. And part of the revolution that we are trying to lead is that we want to transform the media, the media landscape. And so I think that any of my brothers and any of my sisters and any of my peers um, who would want to go on that journey with us are all part of the revolt and the revolution. All right. Well, you are a busy man. You got better things to do than spend an hour <laughs> with me with Tatavio. Really appreciate you coming on. Enjoy talking with you. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you for having me back, man. I guess I'll see you another year, maybe two. <laughs> Hopefully, so. I, I, I'll make it a point to be sooner. I'll check in with you probably closer to the upfront, actually, now that I would think about it. That'll be perfect. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.